I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Welcome back to Vet Sessions. My name is Dr. Tiffany Dursey, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for coming back. Today, in-house, we have Dr. Allison Collier, and she is going to talk about everything poo, which is really exciting. Hi, Allison. Hello, how are you? <laughs> Good. Welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. So Dr. Allison Collier is an internal medicine specialist here at OBC at the Companion Animal Hospital. Before we get started, I thought maybe she could tell us a little bit about her background and, and how it is that she came to be here at OBC. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like many veterinarians, I've kind of wanted to be a vet for as long as I can remember. So it was an easy decision to want to go into vet school and had lots of pets growing up, menagerie of kind of turtles, bunnies, dogs, cats, um, and then was lucky enough to get into vet school at OVC. And then during OVC, I really loved physiology in particular. And then kind of when shadowing clinics, I shadowed an internist kind of near where I'm from back home in kind of Aurora Newmarket area. And absolutely loved getting to shadow her and kind of seeing her work through cases and using the physiology that I just learned in vet school. So that made me really, really love internal medicine. So then I decided to do a rotating internship after I graduated in 2017. And I did my rotating internship at a private practice in Rochester, New York, where the internists there were just some of the loveliest, most supportive people I had ever met. And I was always so excited for my weeks on internal medicine. Um, so then it made it an easy decision to want to do a residency and was so lucky to get to come back to OVC for my residency in internal medicine, which I finished in 2021. And during my internal medicine residency, I was really fortunate um, to get to be involved with a project on fecal transplants and canine um, inflammatory bowel disease. Which is why we're talking everything poo today. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exciting because I understand that you just defended um, your thesis uh, for your DVSC. Exactly. Yep. I finished that in December of 2022. Congratulations. That's uh, that's a big, big deal. And uh, fecal transplants are something that I have heard about, uh, but I know very little. So before we dive in, um, I'm just going to do a call out to the OVC Pet Trust. So this episode of Vet Sessions is generously sponsored by OVC Pet Trust. OVC Pet Trust was founded in 1986 at the Ontario Veterinary College, and it's Canada's first charitable fund dedicated to improving and advancing companion animal health and well-being. OVC Pet Trust supports innovative discoveries, education, and healthcare that improve the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of diseases of pets. And you can learn more about OVC Pet Trust at www.pettrust.ca, or you can connect with them on Instagram at the handle at OVC Pet Trust. And in fact, uh, Dr. Allison Collier has some research that is uh, funded by OBC Pet Trust, and maybe we'll um, we'll talk a little bit more of that at the very end, Sounds so that great. we can first of all talk about everything poo. Love it. Sounds great. So where do we start? Tell me about poo. Yeah. So kind of where to begin? <laughs> so much to talk about, um, but I think you know it's something that started to be investigated just because, as you know, so many veterinarians know, inflammatory bowel disease can be so tricky to treat. And that there are kind of a large portion of patients who don't respond despite kind of aggressive treatments with, you know, immunosuppressives, diets, probiotics, etc. Um, so kind of we've looked into these additional treatment modalities. And it seems new, but it's actually something that's been investigated for kind of quite a while in human medicine. Um, they've used it kind of dating really far back for things like inflammatory bowel disease or kind of antibiotic um, associated diarrhea. 
And one of the kind of biggest successes they actually noticed in human medicine was with recurrent C. difficile infection, where kind of with fecal transplants, there's often cure rates of over 90%. Wow. Um, even in patients that aren't, aren't responsive to like big gun antibiotics like vancomycin. Um, so really, really big successes with recurrent C. difficile infection with fecal transplants. So because of that, they started looking into it kind of for human inflammatory bowel disease and also found that it was beneficial. Not quite as miraculously so as with recurrent C. difficile infection, but uh, still beneficial. So because of that, um, people have started to look into it in veterinary medicine as well. Um, there aren't as many studies just yet in veterinary medicine on fecal transplants. Um, so it still is kind of a newer modality in, in veterinary medicine, but again, something that's been researched more in human medicine. There's lots of kind of case studies and case reports and anecdotal reports where patients have responded really favorably to it, um, but still kind of limited in the clinical trials that we have. Um, there is some evidence that kind of in puppies with parvovirus, they can have shortened diarrhea with fecal transplants. Um, and, you know, a project I was fortunate enough to be involved with during my residency is where it was a randomized clinical trial of dogs with newly diagnosed inflammatory bowel disease that were treated kind of with the standard of care treatment. So still treated with a hypoallergenic diet and steroids, but then some dogs were randomized to receive a fecal transplant. Um, and that study did happen during COVID. So that did impact oh, wow. our, our case recruitment a little <laughs> bit. So the power was a little bit limited in the study, but there was a trend um, towards the dogs that received fecal transplant to respond more quickly and have lower, which is a better clinical disease scoring index as compared to dogs that didn't receive fecal transplants. That um, is so interesting. Yeah, really encouraging results. And, you know, it was um, so nice being part of that study and getting to see dogs that I can think of two in particular that were just so refractory to absolutely everything. And then within 48 hours of a fecal transplant had normal wow. stools. So not in, not in every dog, it's that miraculous, but certainly in some it can be. So, so I guess the obvious question is, how does one perform a fecal transplant? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> and, you know, it's something that thankfully doesn't require a lot of finesse. So it seems mm -hmm. like this big, scary procedure, but it's absolutely something that could be done in general practice. Um, and I think kind of one of the first aspects when you're doing a fecal transplant is finding a suitable donor. And I find that's often the hardest part. Okay. Um, ideally, the dog, and um, there's a nice review by Dr. Chapman that kind of nicely goes over the criteria when you're looking for a fecal donor. But ideally, it's a kind of like young to middle-aged dog. So obviously not a puppy and then, you know, not a dog that's too old either. They should have a normal body condition just because of associations with an, an abnormal microbiome and kind of being overweight or underweight. Obviously kind of no history of routine GI signs, um, no acute GI signs either. Ideally, they shouldn't have received antibiotics at least in the past six months just because antibiotics can impact the GI microbiome for such a long period of time. Wow. Um, kind of on a non-raw food diet, um, kind of up to date on vaccines, on regular kind of deworming prevention as well. Um, and then we'll also kind of test their feces kind of with a fecal float to look for parasites, a Giardia elisa, and then fecal culture just to make sure they're negative for things like Salmonella or Campylobacter. So kind of trying to find a dog that meets sure. all those criteria can sometimes be a little More bit problematic. Um, also no history of allergies, I forgot to mention as well. Okay. So kind of once you've found that dog, um, then kind of as mentioned, you kind of collect a stool sample and screen it as we were discussing with the fecal float, Giardia testing. Some people will even submit the kind of diarrhea PCR panel to kind of screen a little bit more comprehensively for pathogens. Um, and then a fecal culture, mainly just to make sure there's no Salmonella or Campylobacter. And then after that, so then after you've kind of 
found um, a donor. The perfect that's poop. The perfect poop, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that's something that's actually better defined in human medicine as well. They have what's called super donors. Oh, wow. Where they're donors that have been shown to be more efficacious for fecal transplants. And we're not quite there in veterinary medicine. Okay. Um, one thing you could look at is something called the dysbiosis index of the donor. Um, to kind of see, you know, make sure that donor doesn't have subclinical dysbiosis. The tricky thing with that, though, is that it does add a fair bit of extra cost to the screening and just kind of another check mark that that donor has to meet, which makes it a little right. bit harder to kind of find a suitable donor. And the dysbiosis index, although it's great, it doesn't account for kind of other beneficial aspects of the fecal transplant because although the bacteria are a really, really important aspect, there's so many other important aspects to the poop, um, including... Sure you know, viruses, um, short chain fatty acids, secondary bile acids. So lots of other beneficial things other than just the bacteria that aren't assessed for in the dysbiosis index. That's a lot. Yeah. So I can see how it could be. And then tell me, can these patients be on other medications as well? Or I guess you have to make sure that the medicate, like, so say for instance, you had a dog that was on an NSAID or something like that. Um, Yeah. I guess ideally not, right? Ideally not. Yeah. I think, you know, if it's a medication that doesn't impact the microbiome, you know, it's it's less of a concern, but then you always wonder kind of the disease that's being treated with that medication, would that influence the GI microbiome? So ideally not right. on any medications other than just kind of routine prevention. Um, and so so sort of like a blood donor, it sounds like we might be looking for sort exactly. of poop, poop donors at some point in time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's a, another thing as well, too. You know, at OVC, we're so fortunate to have the blood donors, which we kind of can use as a two for one also for fecal donors, just because they are kind of so well screened. We know they're not on a raw food diet. Um, they've already been tested. Um, but certainly you would be able to find um, kind of a dog that meets those criteria in general practice as well, too. If you're interested, it may just take a little bit of searching. Um, and then kind of once we've kind of found that well-screened stool sample to make it up, again, doesn't re- require a lot of fancy equipment. You just kind of get the feces and then mix it in a blender with saline. Um, and there's different kind of recipes, for lack of a better term, <laughs> that you can use. And um, again, the review by Dr. Chapman kind of nicely goes over that. But kind of different proportions you could use would be kind of one part feces to five parts saline. Okay. Mix it in a blender that you obviously don't use for anything else. <laughs> and it's not, yes. well labeled as the poop blender. Very well labeled. Um, so mix it and then just kind of um, filter it to get out any particulates and then store it kind of at negative 20 or negative 80 Celsius for up to three months. Oh, wow. So again, yeah, not a lot of fancy equipment required. So definitely okay. something that you could do in general practice if you had a suitable donor. Wow, that's really interesting. And then, so let's get back to a suitable candidate. So so what, um, again, you said irritable bowel, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so at what point should a practitioner or any, um, whether it's in general practice or internal med- uh, medicine specialist, when would you consider um, uh, fecal transplant? Because actually, once you have um, the suitable uh, donor, uh, it obviously, it, it doesn't sound too complicated no, absolutely. And, and, and maybe even less complicated than all this med- medication, which, um, For sure. yeah, which can be tough. So yeah, tell me about that. No, that's a great question as well. Cause you're right. Kind of in addition to finding a, a suitable donor, another big question is who is a good recipient. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's some situations where this has start begun to be investigated in veterinary, okay. veterinary medicine. So I think puppies with parvovirus is one where it's been looked at, where it's, uh, I think, as I briefly mentioned before, is kind of shortened the time of diarrhea. So that would be one um, potential yeah. application. Um, and then I think another thing where it's been again, more heavily investigated in human medicine would be as part of the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease. Okay. I don't think, at least as of yet, we have evidence that fecal transplants 
um, are efficacious as the sole treatment for inflammatory bowel disease. Because when you think of the pathogenesis for IBD, it really involves this multimodal pathogenesis where it often involves a dysregulated immune response kind of causing this GI inflammation in their gut and then kind of the bacteria in their gut are all out of whack and they have dysbiosis. So I do worry that kind of if you just use a fecal transplant alone, you're not targeting the other aspects of the disease. And then if you're not treating, say, for example, the underlying GI inflammation, it will just perpetuate continued dysbiosis. Um, So again, maybe future studies will kind of contradict that. But I think for now, um, most of our evidence is using it as part of the treatment for inflammatory bowel disease. Um, so I think that would be a situation to consider it as well, too, if you, you know, diagnose um, a patient with newly diagnosed inflammatory bowel disease, in addition to kind of putting them on a hypoallergenic diet, using medications to control GI inflammation, and then also considering probiotics um, and things like fecal transplants to see if you can target the dysbiosis that those patients have. And maybe by treating that, you know, the goal would be, can we get them on a lower dosage of medications like prednisone than we would have been able to otherwise, or maybe we can even taper them more quickly. So I think that's another huge application. Um, And then I think other situations where you could consider using fecal transplants. Um, So patients with acute diarrhea, that's also another potential Mm. application, um, which has been looked at in a study. um, And I think is something to consider too, especially, you know, if you're Reaching for things like metronidazole, maybe instead in the future, we'll start reaching for things like fecal transplant instead. Wow. Um, just with the evidence that we have now that metronidazole and tylosin and things like that can have a lasting detrimental impact on the GI microbiome. Uh, maybe instead, kind of for patients that aren't responding to things like time and a bland diet, we'll start using fecal transplants instead. Um, and then I think another big application could be is if you had a patient that was on antibiotics and had diarrhea Um, Even after the antibiotics were finished, then maybe using fecal transplants to see if you can restore the GI microbiome may be beneficial. Wow. So it sounds like there's some really potential for uh, the fecal transplants. Yeah. And and certainly um, early intervention, which um, so so again, getting back to IBD, some of the chronic cases would be less of uh, an option because you said um, early diagnosis of IBD. It's a good question. And I think just something we don't have a ton of evidence for against either way. We've certainly used it in patients that um, kind of aren't newly diagnosed. I think the risk would be as if they've been on immunosuppressives, say for several months before the fecal transplant, could that increase the risk of adverse effects following the fecal transplant? Potentially. Okay. Um, however, that being said, it has been safely given to patients on immunosuppressive medications. Um, but I think, you know, if they had been on them chronically, I think there is a risk that could, even if it's a mild risk, increase the risk of complications. Okay. And so um, with risks, what kind of risks would you be looking at um, or adverse effects related to this procedure? Yeah, and thankfully it's um, usually pretty well tolerated. I think some of the risks, probably the main one is that it doesn't work um, just because I think we don't know enough yet in veterinary medicine about picking the ideal recipient and then picking the ideal donor for that recipient. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's a big risk. Other risks would be is that it can um, kind of transiently worsen the GI sign. So causing kind of worsening diarrhea or cramping or vomiting. Thankfully, that's usually short lived if that happens. Um, kind of other other risks that are more serious would be sepsis if the bacteria that are transplanted are absorbed systemically. And that would be a risk that we're worried about, even though it's really, really rare, um, being kind of a slightly increased risk if the patient has been on several immunosuppressives for some time. Um, so thankfully, you know, very unlikely risk, but of course, heartbreaking um, if yeah, it happens. Sure. Other risks would be transplanting something infectious. That's why we kind of so thoroughly screen our donors, donors. but... Even with that, you know, that risk isn't 0%. 
Um, and then there are some longer term risks, which I don't think we know as much about in veterinary medicine, but have been better documented in people, including things like changes in behavior, changes in body condition following fecal transplant, which is mm-hmm. super interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. So so lots of research potentials um, um, in the future. Absolutely. So getting back to how one would actually do the procedure, and I have had someone ask me before, can't they just eat poo? And dogs do eat poo, so yep. maybe not something that humans would want to do. <laughs> no. um, because uh, the actual procedure is more that it's infused rectally. Is that correct? Typically, yeah. There's so. there's different ways you can administer it. So okay. kind of the one we do most commonly is um, just as a retention enema. Okay. Um, there is kind of you know you can think about it kind of as upper versus lower roots of administration. So lower roots being things like enema, upper roots being things like you know, oral administration, um, or even like in people, they'll do a nasoduodenal infusion. Oh, Um, And so they've done studies in people looking at, you know, is the lower or upper root more efficacious? And a lot of the studies show similar results between the two two roots, Hmm. um, with some studies showing an increased risk of adverse effects with Hmm. the upper root, probably because of things like aspiration. Okay. Um, So that's why we tend to use the lower root of administration. Um, But you're absolutely right. You know, how convenient would it be if we could kind of give them a capsule or something with the transplanted feces? I think the worry and the risk would be, um, you know, how would those bacteria survive going through the stomach and gastric juices? Mm. And would they be viable by the time they reach the location of interest? Um, So something I think, you know, that would be really exciting to um, investigate with a future study, but I think not something we know um, whether it's beneficial in dogs and cats yet. Okay. So in your study, it was um, delivered by enema. Correct. Yeah. And then um, how do you know how much to give? Yeah. So another great question. So um, when we would give it via enema with kind of our, our dosage and our recipe, it was about 10 mils per kilogram. Um, but on kind of the guidelines by Dr. Chapman, they typically recommend giving about kind of, if I'm remembering correctly, two to five grams of feces per kilogram body weight of the recipient, Okay. which kind of when you do the math of our recipe and that dosage that, you know, using 10 mils per kilo of our recipe works out to about two grams per fe- um, kilogram uh, body weight of the recipient. Okay. So kind of on the lower end of that uh, that dosage. Um, yeah, so we just administer it as a retention enema kind of with a catheter kind of inserted into the rectum, given slowly, say, over about 15 to 30 minutes. Okay. Um, and most patients tolerate it really, really well. I found most of them don't even need sedation for the procedure. Oh, okay. um, so it's really, really easy to administer. Um, and you know, yeah, like I said, most patients don't even need sedation. Some that are kind of a little bit sensitive may need a little bit, but um, usually quite well tolerated. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I would have thought maybe some sedation, but um, but yeah, not not, not too bad. Nothing, nothing different than a rectal thermometer well, or something like ex- that. Yeah, absolutely. And the nice yeah, thing absolutely. with them not being sedated is when they are sedated, yeah. it, you know, the retention isn't quite as good. Um, sure. So it, another advantage if they're if they don't need sedation. Sure. And then so Allison, we've been talking a lot about canine fecal transplants Uh, but tell me is this something that we can use in cats definitely yeah so um in cats kind of less research even than in dogs so i think something that's even kind of a little bit less evidence-based in cats um there have been several though kind of case studies and uh, case reports of using it successfully in cats um so i think something that certainly uh, hopefully we'll see more studies in the future as it's investigated more but i think certainly something to consider as part of the treatment for feline inflammatory bowel disease Um, I think a few kind of unique feline considerations would be um, in particular related to donor screening. Um, So kind of when screening a feline donor, making sure you're also testing them for FELV, FIV, 
doing a tritrichomonas PCR would be a really um, another important consideration. And then also testing for a feline coronavirus potentially as well too. Um, so kind of a few extra steps to take when screening a feline donor, um, but otherwise um, when we've administered it to feline patients, we've done it similarly um, kind of as a rectal enema. Find more often the cats understandably do need sedation Ooh, than, than dogs. Right. Makes sense. Um, <laughs> yeah, not too surprisingly, um, but definitely something you can consider in cats too, just kind of less studies we have um, investigating that in cats, but hopefully we'll see more as time goes on. And is that the same uh, volume, same recipe, but obviously just with cat poop? Exactly. Yeah. Same volume, same, re- same recipe. Sounds great. So something also to consider. Yeah, definitely. And then um, how do you evaluate whether it's effective or not? Or how quickly do you think um, it, it would take to be effective? So I think that the best way and kind of the main way we've judged efficacy is just based on clinical response. So how is the patient doing afterwards? Um, you can more objectively trend that with some of those clinical scoring indices. Um, but I think you already get a pretty good sense of that from chatting with the owners, kind of, you know, using the Purina fecal chart to right. seeing how that's changed, um, you know, seeing how their demeanor and appetite and um, other gastrointestinal signs have trended. Um, and usually we see a response pretty quickly, often within a couple days of the procedure, if they're going to respond, well, we'll, that's great. we'll see a response. Um, sometimes it can be short lived. So sometimes a few days after the procedure, kind of they'll have improved clinical signs and then their signs will relapse, say, you know, after anywhere from kind of one to two weeks to several weeks to several months later. Um, So some institutions actually will kind of right off the bat repeat the procedure kind of one to two weeks after the first procedure. Okay. And then then sort of as needed? Exactly. And then as needed after that. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So that's, this sounds like a really promising um, treatment for IBD and and, and even parvovirus. I can see how that that would be very effective. I guess it's just trying to remember to, 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 you know, use another thing or option in your toolbox. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's just, you know, another option in the toolbox, especially for these patients that can sometimes be refractory to so many other therapies. Um, you know, how nice would it be to, like you said, have another tool in our toolbox to treat them? Yeah. Now, have you seen some patients that have been able to wean off some of the immunosuppressive drugs? I mean, I would imagine ideally that would be uh, the best option. Yep. Oh, absolutely. So um, definitely there are some patients that can be completely weaned off the immunosuppressive medications and then kind of just maintained with diet alone for their remission. Um, And kind of in our study, as I briefly mentioned during my residency that I had the opportunity to be involved with, the patients, again, this wasn't quite statistically significant due to limited power, but there was a trend for the patients that received fecal transplants to have a more rapid resolution in their clinical signs, which could potentially facilitate earlier tapering of medications. Wow. So so when you look at um, uh, when to start this, um, is this something that we're ready for in general practice? Is this something that we should be considering and reaching for, or are we not quite there yet? I think it's it's something to consider if, you know, you discuss with the owners kind of some of the pros and cons. Again, I don't think we have a ton of evidence yet in veterinary medicine that it's, you know, a, a miraculous treatment. But I think anecdotally, we've certainly seen patients respond really well to it. Um, so I think it wouldn't be wrong to kind of off the bat start it as kind of a component of your treatment for patients with inflammatory bowel disease. So potentially people should start looking at uh, having some kind of donor program or starting up some kind of donor program at, uh, at their hospital. I think it certainly wouldn't be wrong. And, you know, at OVC, we have started a fecal donor program um, just because I know there are some concerns with finding an appropriate donor. So to alleviate some of those concerns, we've tried to have some kind of 
readily screen donors available to create kind of a safe supply of fecal transplants. Um, so, you know, if you were in practice and did want to do a fecal transplant, but were having kind of trouble finding a, a, a suitable donor, or kind of didn't have the resources to screen a suitable donor um, at OVC, kind of we do um, are fortunate enough to have some fecal donors um, that um, readily supply for us to kind of have a, yeah. an ample supply of fecal transplant for a clinical patients. So if that is something you were interested in, kind of referral for that procedure would also be an option. Great. And are you currently recruiting for... Um, donors are looking for more poo. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a good, a good enough source of poop uh, currently just with all the blood donors. Um, you know, thankfully we're fortunate to have that. So that's, that's allowed great. us to have a large supply of fecal donors, but I'll let you know if that changes. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. That's really great. Um, and so um, what more should we know about fecal transplants and the potential, or can you even consider or comment on future research or things that you would like to see uh, in this particular area? Yeah. And I, I think there's kind of, we're just, I think at the tip of the ice, um, with what we know about fecal transplants currently. So, and it's, you know, really a hot topic right now in veterinary yeah. medicine. So I'm sure we're going to see um, so many more studies investigating fecal transplants. So I think we'll have to kind of stay tuned. Um, I think they've used it in uh, human medicine for some really interesting applications. Um, I was reading a study where kind of they used it for various autoimmune diseases, which oh, I found wow. really interesting. Um, just since they've documented that the GI microbiome is abnormal in patients with autoimmune disease, but it's kind of the chicken and the egg question of you know right. what came first. But um, interesting that they've used it for applications like that to kind of help treat some of those autoimmune diseases. Um, so definitely not there in veterinary medicine yet, but I think um, will be interesting to see if we discover other applications for it. Um, you know, I also saw in human medicine using it for things like graft versus host disease. Um, hepatic encephalopathy was another one, sepsis. Wow. So some really kind oh, of odd applications where you wouldn't think of using it. So um, I'm sure we'll kind of continue to learn more about it in veterinary medicine as more studies are done to better understand kind of who the ideal patient is to receive it and um, how to best administer it um, to have the best chance of success. Yeah, and there's so much research um, being done on the gut microbiome. I mean, I remember mm -hmm. when I graduated 20 years ago, that wasn't even, I mean, we used to use metronidazole like yep. candy here, which is not good. Uh, and certainly things have changed a lot and lots more education about probiotics and prebiotics and, you know, having the right diet for that pet. Definitely. Um, so lots of nutrition um, uh, education at Definitely. the moment. So, uh, and so my understanding is that you do teach at the moment um, the um, gastro um, in, intestinal yep. diseases and whatnot at OVC. Um, so I guess you'll start talking about fecal transplants a little bit yeah, more too. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no, and it's, it is such a good point, kind of how, th how much things have changed even just in the past couple of years. Cause you know, even since I've graduated, it wasn't too long ago. Um, you know, I, I remember metronidazole being used so commonly kind of, yep. um, once I, once I just graduated and it really has shifted, um, kind of in the past few oh, years. For sure. for sure. Yeah. Even in the last few years, like I think it's very, um, I mean, it used to be something that we did um, commonly prescribe. And then I think, yeah, definitely it's been decreasing and we're a little bit more aware of some of the different options. And like I said, the probiotics and prebiotics and, and, and sure. that type of thing and in time, right? So, time is the biggest thing. I agree. And yeah. I think it's just, it's hard when it's this knee jerk reaction where as soon as you have a patient with diarrhea to want to prescribe something like metronidazole or tylosin to kind of That's try and right. alleviate the, the pet of their clinical signs and also for the client to kind mm -hmm. of feel like you're doing something and that's where it's nice to kind of have other tools in your toolbox to be able to offer the client so you still feel like you're treating that pet but you're also not giving them an antibiotic that may do more harm than good sure um so like you mentioned i think time is probably one of the the biggest things um other things kind of giving a bland diet or easily digestible diet can be beneficial 
Um, probiotics, you know, we don't have a lot of evidence um, that they're helpful in either kind of acute or chronic diarrhea, but at the same time, they're probably unlikely to do harm and less likely to do harm than antibiotics. So right. something that's probably, you know, safer to give than metronidazole or tylosin. And then maybe one day fecal transplants will also be part of that treatment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if, if it is some, you know, if you've got a donor and you've got it stored and like you said, it's some uh, pretty uh, plentiful. Yep. Once you find a donor, it's pretty easy to find. And then you said that you can actually freeze the poo. You can. Yep. So okay. um, either at negative 20 Celsius or if you had it available to you, negative 80 Celsius, but I know most people don't. Um, but <laughs> And they've even studied kind of how long are the bacteria good at that temperature. And generally up to three months is pretty safe. Mm -hmm. um, the main thing you want to avoid that can be really damaging to the bacteria is the freeze-thaw cycle. Okay. Um, so if you had a kind of fecal transplant syringe frozen and then thawed it for a patient and then didn't end up using it, I wouldn't kind of refreeze it. Okay. I would probably Throw toss it, it at that point. Okay. And then uh, basically a blender and then some enema supplies and you're kind of good to go. Yeah. Yeah. So really not any <laughs> fancy equipment, not a lot of finesse needed. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty, pretty easy to pretty. make up and, and give for sure. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I look forward to using it. So we'll have to sort of look at sort of our, our, our database of clients and see, you know, when and uh, when it would be applicable. So. Oh, for sure. And it's so exciting <laughs> when you have a patient that's just kind of been so refractory to other therapies mm. and then you kind of you give them a fecal transplant and then kind of 48 hours, their stool's improving. It's That's incredible. It's so exciting. It's such a good feeling. And you know, like I said, certainly not every patient responds, but um, it's so exciting when you have a patient that does. Yeah. And it sounds like a little there are risks with everything. It sounds like the risks are pretty low. So I yeah, agree. Pretty and, easy to administer. And, you know, yeah. in our, our study, again, a pretty small study. So, I, you know, can't comment on this too much. But um, the patients we had in the study all tolerated it really well. Okay. Um, no major complications. Um, again, probably the biggest risk is that it, it doesn't work. But I think if you kind of do your due diligence, properly screening the donor um, and choosing the right recipient, thankfully, the risks are usually pretty minimal. And then do you have any follow-up studies or future studies in this particular area planned or not yet? Yeah, so a couple. Um, so one um, myself and Dr. Blois are looking at is looking at the skin and gastrointestinal microbiota um, of dogs that are at risk for kind of um, chronic enteropathy or atopic dermatitis. Um, just because um, it has been shown that kind of the bacteria um, in those patients can be abnormal. So trying to see um, if we can, you know, once those dogs develop inflammatory bowel disease or atopic dermatitis, kind of having banked samples from them over time to see if we can kind of then find microbial signatures that predict the development of atopic dermatitis or chronic enteropathy. Wow. So that's really exciting. Um, and then another study kind of not quite related to this, but... Um, looking at video capsule endoscopy in dogs being treated with high doses of steroids. So typically kind of dogs with IMHA or IMPA. Um, and so I understand that you're recruiting um, actively for the endoscopy study. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, if anyone um, in particular, you know, if you have patients with newly diagnosed IMHA or IMPA, it's they may be a candidate for this study. So any referrals for those are always welcome. Fantastic. And our viewers can always um, uh, contact us at vet sessions. So I'll share that at the very end. Um, so Allison, this has been really exciting and this is a really new topic that I'm happy to learn more about. And I, I see a lot of future in this, um, because it's so readily available. The risks are so low. Um, certainly diarrhea is something that we, mm -hmm. and IBD and parvovirus is something that we see often, uh, particularly in general practice. And even, um, when you look at it from the, uh, the cost perspective of the client, it sounds like it's something that's very, uh, feasible. So I look Definitely. forward to, um, I guess it's just trying to, uh, start out and say, okay, like this is an ideal case. So you might hear from us in the future saying, oh, hey, let's absolutely. do it. <laughs> yeah, no, and anyone's welcome to reach out if they have any a case where they're considering using it. I'm, I'm happy to 
um, kind of chat through it for sure because it is a you know, really exciting new treatment modality and chronic diarrhea is so frustrating for pets and for owners so it it's, sure it's so nice to just have another treatment modality to try in some of these patients. Absolutely well thank you so much for your time today Allison. Oh it, thank you I yes. appreciate it it was and great having me on here and I had a lot of fun and yeah thank you so much. Great and we'll have you come back and talk about some other GI diseases so thank you to our guests for listening today if you have any further questions or ideas please send us an email to vetsessions at hotmail.com and you can also follow us on Instagram at Vet Sessions. If you have some interest and you would like to uh, contact Dr. Allison Collier about the endoscopy study, you can also email us vetsessions at hotmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.